You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Douglas Carlton Abrams has been an editor at HarperCollins and a literary agent. His first novel was The Lost Diary of Don Juan. His new novel is Eye of the Whale. Thank you for joining me, Doug. Great to be here, Rick. Doug, I have to ask, is the inception of this book the event that I'm thinking of that's mirrored in the middle of the book? Uh, tell me what, what in particular you're, you're well, wondering. Well, there was a, a, an incident a couple of years ago when we had two whales up at the Sacramento River Delta, and then we had Humphrey the whale up before that. Right. Well, actually, it's, uh, it's interesting that you ask because I was sitting by the fire with my twin daughters reading them a children's book about Humphrey the whale who had swam up the Sacramento River in uh, the 1980s. And we were just hearing about the Thames, uh, the whale that was up the Thames at that same time. Mm -hmm. And while we were hearing about that, another friend of ours was telling us about some quite staggering discoveries that were being made about what was happening to the environment and to human health. And the question that sparked this book was whether there could be some connection, what was happening with the whales, what was happening in the ocean, whether that would, could be connected to what was happening on the land. Um, and actually, while I was writing the book, uh, Delta and Dawn swam up the river. And so I got to see my novel unfold in real time. Wow, that must have been really fun. Um, it, one of the things that, that uh, strikes me about this book is I cannot imagine a more enjoyable book to research. You must have had a blast doing all this stuff. It, it was pretty amazing. So the book, uh, obviously, from its title, it's about whales. It's about the oceans. Uh, it's about uh, white sharks. And mm -hmm. so I was able to uh, spend time swimming with whales in Tonga with the marine biologists. Uh, I was able to go cage diving with the white sharks out at the Farallon Islands. You have to follow the story wherever it takes you. So <laughs> I, 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 I fortunately, I only set my novels in places where I want to go. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, Paris next. Eh? Right, exactly. Well, <laughs> actually, and the another place I went, uh, also a hardship uh, trip, was to the Caribbean because uh, they're, one of the characters, as you know, is a, a whaler from mm -hmm. the Caribbean, and so I needed to go meet the whalers of, of Bekwe in the Caribbean, so another hardship travel. Well, one of the things you do very well in this book, it begins with a great description of a whale giving birth. Did this come from your experience in Tonga? And tell us, you know, I, I've heard the name Tonga. Where the heck is Tonga? And how did you get there? And how did you get hooked up with these people to swim with the humpback whales? Well, uh, Tonga is actually in the South Pacific. Mm -hmm. And uh, I it was actually, there's so much serendipity in this writing of this book. Uh, and that's not just because I live in Santa Cruz that, there was, that I see it as serendipity, <laughs> but it was quite amazing. And as I was researching, one of the marine biologists that I was put in touch with was a marine biologist down uh, from Australia. And she actually happened to be working with an organization called Marine Mammal Conservation Through the Arts, which is based here in Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. And uh, her name happened to be the same as my main, as my protagonist uh, as well. <laughs> and wow. so, yeah, it was uh, pretty amazing. And so I got to go, uh, we talked about my coming on a research trip with them and I got to go into the water uh, and swim with the with the whales and videotape their behavior and uh, tape their uh, their songs and um, 
what happened actually was quite amazing. The, the first half hour I was off the, the flight from this tiny little airplane, you have to fly to New Zealand and then from New Zealand to the main island of Tonga and then to this little island in Tonga. And so after the 24 hours of travel, I got off the plane, we jump on the boat, we're within a half hour of getting off the plane, we're in the water, we've spotted whales, and in front of me, I see the first uh, scene of my book unfolding before my eyes. It was pretty <laughs> incredible. Yeah, it was now, quite amazing. Now, did you have to learn to scuba dive to, before you to undertook this project, or was that something you already knew how to do? Well, actually, I have had a chance to scuba dive and snorkel quite a bit. You can't actually, or it's preferable not to scuba dive with the whales because the uh, bubbles are, disturb the whales mm -hmm. uh, and they also disrupt the recordings. Mm. So uh, you actually are just snorkeling. Oh, really? And with the whales, uh, they're pretty uh, close to the surface generally. Mm -hmm. they, they're in their breeding grounds uh, was in Tonga. And so the water's fairly shallow. And you're there with the, the, the mothers and the, the babies and the escort whales as well. And uh, one of the quite incredible experiences that I had was when I was that, that same moment that I was in the water with this uh, mother. It was a mother with her newborn calf uh, draped across her back, an escort whale below. Uh, escorts are the males. And the, the escort male, this 70,000-pound male whale, comes Jeez. up to, to check me out eyeballs me and uh, as he's passing by he raises his uh, pectoral fin over my body gracefully to avoid uh, knocking me out of the way if he had chosen I would have been dead he would you know these thousand <laughs> several thousand pound pectoral fins could have just knocked me out but uh, this is uh, there was it was just extraordinary to see the uh, look into that eye and to see his care in avoiding hurting me, which would have been very easy to have done. Now, one of the things you mentioned in this book, and I think this is really interesting, that when you're in the water, you can actually feel the whale's uh, sounds, can't you? Yeah, the, uh, the songs, you can hear them, and if you're close enough, you can actually bodily feel them, and it can be a, an incredibly intense and actually quite overwhelming experience. I wasn't so close to the songs that I had that experience, but I did interview uh, quite a few people who had had that experience, and they said it was like being right next to uh, an enormous uh, kind of uh, concert speaker that's just booming through your body, and you're just trembling from the inside out and overwhelmed by the intensity of the sound. You're in Tonga. Yes. You're, you're swimming with whales. How much of the plot of your book do you know about at this point? I mean, I, I'm curious about how this book was was built because it has it's got a great you know page turning thriller plot, um, which I don't want to talk too much about because I want you know the readers to under, to experience it themselves. But I'm curious as you were re researching this book, did you know how much what you know what was going to happen in the book? Well, it's a great question. When I went to Tonga, I did have a, a draft of the of the novel pretty much uh, ready, but it evolved a great deal mm -hmm. as a result of my work in Tonga. And I worked with a lot of different scientists on mm -hmm. the book, as you know. There was, uh, because it's fact-based fiction, there's, mm -hmm. a, and so the story evolved as I found out what was true or more likely to be true. So there was a kind of uh, a feedback loop, if mm -hmm. you will, in terms of 
putting out a, a fictional hypothesis of could this happen and finding out whether it was realistic or possible. Mm -hmm. And so when I was in Tonga, there was definitely uh, a, a, a lot of the travel that I do is to deepen that as writing a novel, as I'm sure you know, is a process of creating the story ideas and the architecture, mm -hmm. and then you go in and you drywall, and then you paint, and you put all of the different or uh, kind of layers of the story in. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what my experience in Tonga was about was experiencing what does it feel like to be with the whales? What is it like to to experience them, to come upon them, to, uh, to see their behavior, to respond. What would it be like for my main character, who's a marine biologist, mm -hmm. to have that kind of sensory experience? Now, you spent did a, a quite a bit of different research for this. Um, talk about uh, being uh, Australia and, and Libby Air. So uh, Libby uh, is a is actually Libya short for Elizabeth, which I, uh, which is interesting. My main character's name is Elizabeth, but this was one of the coincidences I was mentioning earlier. The fact that her name was Elizabeth, it, it, the character already was named before I met her. But uh, Libby was uh, an extremely generous and wonderful informant uh, for uh, the novel. She told me many, many things about the whales, and also she provided, you know, as a novelist, you steal from a lot of people's lives and back, you know, for the backstory of your characters and for mm -hmm. the, you know, the characteristics of your characters. And one of the things that Libby told me was that she was terrified of sharks. And so uh, that, that made it, I said, how fascinating to have a marine biologist who's terrified of sharks. And she was the one who told me she never, she never looked back because if she was going to be eaten, she didn't want to know it. <laughs> and that was, uh, and actually that was, uh, that made it into my characters uh, as well. So yeah, I owe that to Libby. Well, now let's talk just a little bit about, get, get an idea about this book. It's a story uh, of a graduate student who's researching whales. Yes. Uh, tell us, I, I mean, did you, when you came up with this, you know, the plot arc of this, which involves some kind of conspiracies and some, some uh, you know, page-turning thrills, did you uh, come up with this all at once? Just, did this, was this uh, gifted upon you in a dream? Uh, I, uh, unfortunately not. My, my last book, uh, The Lost Diary of Don Juan, very much was. This one... Uh, was much more of a scientific process mm -hmm. of experimentation and development. It was. Um, it has a much more complex plot line than my last book, mm -hmm. and there are so many more characters and so many more stories. And this is really a global story. So the arc of of a, a female protagonist, a marine biologist who. Uh, risks everything to save this trapped whale and to decode its song and its implications for human survival. That's basically was I knew that was the story that I wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. uh, but exactly how she would go about decoding the uh, whale song was an enormously elaborate process that involved working with the world's uh, leading whale biologist, a man named Roger Payne, who uh, discovered uh, hum that humpback whales sing. He was the, the guy who did that. Right, and he wrote the, the book on it, too. He, he wrote an amazing book called Among Whales, which incredibly beautiful poetic book. And he uh, and these scientists were so incredibly generous. He, in particular, read the entire, you know, the novel and 
he, he was, he's actually a great copy editor, too. <laughs> to my amazement, he was actually uh, refining and polishing my prose as well. Now, uh, I have to ask, did you just cut, like, you know, get out the phone book, Google these people, call them up and say, hey, I'm writing a book about whales. Can I come swim with them? Is that easy? <laughs> uh, well, uh, fortunately, I have had a chance to work uh, because, as you mentioned, I wasn't a book editor. I've worked with a, quite a few scientists mm -hmm. uh, and I have some contacts in that world. Uh, that I was able to utilize and meet the people I needed to meet. But the amazing thing to me was how generous the scientists were with their research, with their time, with their interest. And I think it was a lot of fun for them, actually, because they're spending their lives writing research papers and mm -hmm. studying uh, the very specific details of whale behavior, whale song, and to see their lives dramatized uh, in a novel and what they do dramatized in an exciting story, I think for them was a thrill. Now, you started out, you know, your first book of fact-based fiction was history, based yes. on history. You moved, moved to science, and in a sense, this is kind of a science fiction novel in that it's fiction about science, and you actually do make some, some speculations in there. Sure. Um, could you talk about the difference between uh, science and history as, you know, a grist for the mill, so to speak? It's a great question. The, um, there's, the challenge that's similar, I think, is that you have to enter into a way of seeing the world. So in a historical novel, you enter into the world of a 16th century Spain, where my last novel was set, and everything has to be determined by that worldview and that way of seeing. And anything that's alien or foreign to that, anything that's 21st century California has to go because it's <laughs> you have the constraint, the Procrustean bed of history. Mm -hmm. In this case, you have a similar challenge in that it was really important to me that even though there was some speculation, and some of the speculations that we had in the novel actually were proven uh, scientifically, which we can talk about as mm -hmm. while I was writing the novel, which was quite amazing. But it, I wanted it to be a story that wasn't science fiction in the 27th century. Mm -hmm. It was tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It was uh, a story that could unfold any uh, right now and that it had to be based on the science and the facts that we know about our world. And because this is a story that talks about some very real and very uh, challenging and uh, frightening aspects of the environment and the world that we live in, it had to be all the more factually accurate so that uh, those who might want to discredit that or disbelieve that would not be able to. Now, yeah, one of the things, you really hit a lot of interesting parts. We, we talk about, you know, the fact that, you know, the coral reefs are dying. There's a plastic island in the middle of the ocean. Our world, you know, it seems, you look at the ocean, it seems pristine and pure, but it's not really, is it? it it's quite staggering when we find out that the, the, the dangers that our oceans face and how those dangers relate to our life on, on the land. Um, there's uh, the plastic island that you mentioned that was at one time, this is in the Pacific Ocean, uh, off of uh, basically southwest of, of uh, California, this was at one time the size of Texas, then it was the size of Spain. Now it's the size of three Spains. Uh, there is the all edi edible uh, fish in the ocean are, could very likely be gone by 2050. 
there are dead zones in our oceans. Fire um, retardants, the chemicals that are in our furniture and our computers, are not only causing health challenges to our children, they are also making their way into the ocean. Uh, and our killer whales, for example, have some of the highest levels of these flame retardants uh, now. And so, and these chemicals are causing uh, immune system compromises uh, for these an for the animals. Right now, the the greatest the new harpoon to whales is really chemical toxicity. Beluga whales in the Saint, uh, in the Hudson Bay, when their bodies wash up on shore. They are so filled with chemical toxins that they must be treated like toxic waste. That's just amazing and, and, and really quite horrifying. Um, one of the things that it's kind of has a local connection is uh, the chromium connection. We have a CMEX plant uh, just up the way here in Davenport that, yep. that they have. We had Aaron Brockovich out here not six months ago talking about uh, the, the chromium connection. A and could you talk about, I mean, Chromium's been found in some places you would never expect it to be found. It is uh, amazing, and as you mentioned, chromium many people will know of from Aaron Brockovich's movie, and uh, it is uh, a real an environmental threat. And they've now found chromium in sperm whales in the what were called the the Gilbert Islands, um, that out in. Far, farther out than Tonga, basically, in the South Pacific, in one of the most remote places on the planet. And this is what is uh, so staggering, is that it's not just the, the, because of the way uh, toxins move in our environment, before, because of the way tides work, because of the way the air uh, and, and it circulates, these local toxins that are manufactured in, in places uh, like uh, up, the, up the way, are then spread throughout our entire planet. So the challenge is, while we're very fortunate to live in a, in a very, um, in many ways, pristine and beautiful place, uh, there's no s protecting ourselves just by lifestyle choices. We can't choose to live in a safe place or uh, eat organic alone. That's not going to solve the problem. The problem's of uh, chemical toxicity are, are, are much greater than an individual uh, solution would allow. Now, one of the things you mentioned, make note of it, is that there's really only one ocean. It's like, it reminds me of the old Kurt Vonnegut novel, Cat's Cradle, with Ice Nine. Drop one crystal in, and the entire planet is ice. Yeah. Well, th that was also a pretty amazing revelation for me as I was researching this novel to discover the way that, because of the way that the, the tides move and that water circulates, that you know, they, uh, the oceans don't obey our maps. Water doesn't obey our maps. Uh, and that what affects somebody in, uh, you know, in the, uh, in, off of uh, the coast of, the, of Asia will also affect us, but it'll also affect somebody in the Atlantic Ocean as well. And one of the things also that you mentioned is that the levels of these toxins, um, it's much lower than we expect, can have a much greater effect than we expect, can't they? That, that is also a pretty um, staggering finding. We used to think that the solution to pollution was dilution, basically that there were safe levels for all these chemical toxins that if you, you know, weren't working with it yourself, 
uh, you wouldn't be affected by it. But now what we're finding is that very minute amounts in the parts per billion, the same uh, levels or even less than, I mean, even uh, greater than, quite frankly, uh, pharmaceuticals uh, that are things like uh, Prozac, for example, those levels of, uh, and we know that pharmaceuticals can have quite profound physiological impacts. Mm -hmm. So what we're finding is that those levels, even in the parts per billion, are showing up to have incredible physiological impacts. So things like uh, causing uh, reproductive health, like fertility, to drop, causing uh, breast cancer and prostate cancer, causing uh, illnesses like autism, that very minute amounts can cause gene expression to change. So it can actually cause the way your genes uh, express themselves to change, not only for you, but for your children, and even they're now finding for one's grandchildren. And so these chemical toxins can have enormous impacts on the health of our families over generations. One of your characters makes a, a, a kind of startling statement. Uh, she says, every man in here, you're half the man that your father was. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, amazing finding uh, in my research uh, that our sperm counts have dropped by 50% in the last 50 years. So we, you know, they've gone down 1% per year, uh, which or approximately 1% per year, but a 50% decline. So if you think about where that trajectory is going, you're... That's not you're, good. <laughs> that's not good. And while many of us, uh, many people now think that we have an overpopulation problem, uh, we'll hope that we don't get to the day when, when that comes to a crashing halt. One of the things that must have been really exciting for you is, is the sharks and the Farallons. Yes. Ha, ha, where do I sign up to get in a shark cage <laughs> if, if I want to? <laughs> well, uh, I, I think part of this is a book that, that deals with the oceans. It deals with the, the, the magnificence of whales and sharks and life in the in the water and, and many of my favorite parts of the book and favorite scenes are underwater mm -hmm. and i needed uh, and one of my main characters is a shark researcher at the farallon islands mm -hmm. so i needed to go with uh with a marine biologist to the farallons and to find out what his life would have been like to to get us a real sense of what his research would have been like and it was a, a pretty uh, incredible experience. You actually can go on a commercial tours to the Farallons to dive with the white sharks. It is a marine sanctuary, so they don't chum. They don't try to attract the sharks. Um, but uh, if you go, then you often do see predation or uh, kills of the they feed on the seals. Did you? We saw two. Wow. Yeah. Now, were you underwater when this happened? Uh, actually, I was not. For the, the kills themselves, I was not. Then I was on the surface. I saw those from the surface. I did see a, sh a shark pass by when I was underwater, and, and, and that was uh, quite uh, thrilling enough. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things I should point out, and, and I'm sure you will confirm this, is that the, the sharks are not the villains in this novel. Oh, no, no, no. I think what's interesting is that uh, this novel views sharks in, in much in the same way that, that we see whales as, you know, they're, they're part of a, a, an ecosystem, a part, part of it. They're, they're cogs in a big machine that's the ocean. Yeah, the, it's, it's quite amazing when you spend time with sharks and with people who spend their life researching sharks that you discover 
the the magnificence of of these animals and one of the issues I deal with in, in in the book is this kind of question about what what are intelligence and what are mm-hmm. intelligent species and our relationship to other intelligent species and you you realize that every animal has its appropriate intelligence for what its uh, life and its survival t- requires and, and sharks and are, and whales in particular are, I think, more intelligent. They come off as more intelligent in this book than we might have believed before. And it, it seems that the research backs that up. We, I know I've read more recently about that uh, sharks um, do, in fact, stalk and kill their prey. Yeah, we used to think that sharks were kind of mindless killers that mm-hmm. were just opportunistic. Uh, we actually find that they're very stealthy hunters. This, this may not endear swimmers to them anymore, <laughs> but one of the <laughs> staggering facts that I discovered was sharks can actually see, wh- they know where you're looking. Uh, so if you're under <laughs> underwater, they are, they are that clever and that uh, intelligent that they actually can know where their prey are looking and, and they rely uh, obviously on, on, on stealth in, in their hunting. Uh, but it's not that, that sharks uh, aren't thrilling and, exi- and, and exciting in the book. Uh, I wasn't trying to domesticate them. Oh, because... they're not domesticated. No, <laughs> no. no, no. Um, but I think what we see is that uh, what I was trying to do is to, to not make this. Uh, I wasn't a, uh, trying to make it into a Jaws where they're you know, the villains. Um, and I think that you know, this point that you raise about whale intelligence, being whales being so much more intelligent, it is quite incredible what we're learning about whales. We now know that whales have what are called spindle cells, which are the most advanced human neurons or neurons that humans have that allow us to develop allowed us to develop language and higher reasoning and, and many uh, advanced cognitive functions that now we know that whales have. So it's quite an extraordinary breakthrough to, in terms of the possibilities of the kind of intelligence that cetaceans, whales, and, and dolphins might have. Well, one thing that's interesting to me is you're writing a book where our knowledge of uh, what whale songs are and mean, um, is it's a plot point, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, it, it was actually really, uh, th- th- it is a scientific detective story as well mm-hmm. as uh, a, an eco-thriller in the sense that you're really discovering how uh, the main character, Elizabeth, decodes this whale song. And I, the, I was pushing the science beyond the point of what we know. And, uh, but what was quite amazing was that some of the things that we were hypothesizing in the novel actually have been found out to be true. So, for example, uh, we were hypothesizing an, a mother-infant contact call, a, a, a way in which mothers communicate with their young, and that was and and we were that exact sound that we were hypothesizing was found to uh, be the one that is being used for mothers and infants to con- communicate. Uh, another example is that we were hypothesizing that there were actually social sounds, the sounds that whales use to communicate in everyday life, where we say, hey, Rick, how's it going? Mm-hmm. Can I have a cup of water? <laughs> uh, those kind of social sounds. The, those sounds were actually uh, could potentially be in a song. That was a hypothesis that we were making, and that was also found to be the case, that uh, there were social sounds in songs. So that was quite exciting. Well, um, I have to ask that, when you're the other thing too, let's talk about uh, Beckway. Yeah. Um, 
this is not a typical tourist destination, is it? it it's just, uh, I, I guess it's closer to Venezuela than Haiti, it looks like on the map there. I was kind of trying to figure out where I was. Yeah. And it's interesting. I never thought of the Caribbean as a place where, pe- where there were whalers. Yeah, it was uh, quite interesting to as that whaling is a subject in the book as as well, and there I discovered that there was uh, what there's as many people know there's Aboriginal whaling mm-hmm. uh, about from the Inuit people that were often called the Eskimos, and uh, other places around the world, but there are actually is a community of people in in an island in the Eastern Caribbean. You mentioned Beckway, where these uh, these men were trained by the Yankee whalers mm-hmm. uh, when the United when America used to whale mm-hmm. um, and, and back in Moby Dick times, and they continue that tradition of whaling and they whale humpbacks only a, a few a year, but they continue to do it. And um, I, it isn't it's a beautiful island and beautiful people, uh, but it isn't a typical tourist destination. It is uh, a fairly remote island. Um, but I was able to go there and to meet the whalers and to actually work with another marine biologist who, who is down there, a woman named Natalie Ward, who was, uh, has become an expert on their whaling practices. And it was fascinating because I, I really wanted to understand, uh, you know, when you're writing fiction, you know, in, we want, in life we often want black and white. We mm-hmm. want broad brush strokes. And when you're writing fiction, uh, the the truth is that you to bring a character to life, they need light and shadow. They need grays. Uh, mm-hmm. They need to not be all good or all evil. And so I try in all of my characters to portray them in their complexity and their humanity and not to make them into the bad whaler or the good uh, scientist, but to present them as, as uh, complex and... Um, rich uh, and fraught human beings like all of us. And, and I think that you did a great job with the, with your uh, Beckway whale or uh, Teo. Is, yes. Because uh-huh. uh, he, he's, he's an interesting character because, as you say, we expect whalers to be kind of mustache-twiddling bad guys. Right. And, and But this is kind of a part of his noble tradition, but even he's troubled by it. Yeah, it's true. It, I, I was, uh, you know, I have a... Um, a real respect for people who who live close to the land uh, and respect the land or the sea in this case that they that, that they rely on, mm-hmm. and I think that hunters in many cases, like my father-in-law, for example, are some of the most avid conservationists. Mm-hmm. Uh, they care a great deal about the land, so I think that. Uh, one of the things that we see in Teo is somebody, uh, and we've been relying on our environment and uh, the food in our environment for an awfully long time, uh, and hunting and, and uh, fishing. And so he understands what he's doing from that context. And we look at it and say, we don't want, you know, we have a judgment about it. And, um, and I, you know, if, if I was uh, king, I would say no whaling at all, uh, because I think these are just magnificent creatures that are so close in in evolutionary terms and mammalian terms to our own uh, life and intelligence. We don't eat our relatives or other humans. We draw the line of compassion somewhere. And I think whales should be uh, included in that compassion. But 
I also wanted to show characters that had differing points of view on uh, on whales and on the environment because I don't think this is I think sustainability and creating a world that uh, that can continue is not about a kind of polarization between those who uh, you know between opposites in some extreme way uh, and mm -hmm. that the reality is that we all rely on the earth we all care about the earth and to understand all of the different gradations of concern relationship and commitment is I think an important part of moving forward uh, everybody's going to have to compromise at some point. Yeah, I, I'd be interested in in terms of uh, resource c consumption. Is that what you mm -hmm. mean? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that it, it is really uh, the, the challenges that we and our children are going to face in terms of how to live on a crowded planet uh, with dwindling resources and and uh, d uh, the diminution of the wild. I mean, I mm -hmm. think that's part of the the challenge is that they're just the the kinds of wholesale loss of uh, ecosystems and uh, and what we rely on is what we know as our world mm -hmm. um, is going to require us to come up with solutions uh, that do require all of us to make not just compromises but yes compromises but also I intelligent choices mm -hmm. to uh, I think we can all understand that um, you wouldn't want your outhouse close to your kitchen. And so we have to similarly <laughs> make choices about, well, are we going to put in toxins into an environment that we then feed off of? When I was growing up in, in New York City, I grew up in, in Manhattan, and I would see these barges go off with garbage into the New York Harbor, and they would go out a couple miles, and they just dump the garbage and the garbage would come all floating back. <laughs> and, I mean, even as a small child, I kind of scratched my head and said, something's wrong here. <laughs> yes. And I think that our, we have a deep need to understand mm -hmm. the way the, our, our world works and what we depend on for our survival. Now, when you're writing a book like this, you, on one hand, you have a lot of scientific facts. Yes, and you have stuff, and you don't want to trample on those. On the other hand, you want to tell an exciting story. So, could you talk about going back and forth? You know, achieving that balance, writing a novel that that is, you know, a compulsive page turner, but a compulsive page turner that's chock full of facts. That's a uh, that's a tough nut to crack, eh? It it is it is a challenge. Uh, you always have to balance those two concerns. But I think. Ultimately, the story is is king. Mm -hmm. um, you have, as a novelist, you have to tell an exciting, uh, entertaining story. That was my my first goal. Uh, that was my first responsibility. And so, whether when when there were facts that were interesting to me but didn't move the story forward, they had to go. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's uh, Orwell said, "Murder your darlings." Mm -hmm. And I think that. You, whether those darlings are characters you love that don't serve the plot or facts that don't serve the plot, anything has to go that doesn't serve the story. And that was my primary goal. You talked about this a bit earlier, but I'd like to, to bring this back, is that you ran this past scientists. Now, normally when you're writing a novel, you write it, you give it to your editor, you give right. it to some you know, reading group, your proofreaders or whoever. But... Um, you're running a past scientist, and talk about the scientists as proofreaders and as plot readers. I mean, uh, and then you've also got presumably your editor at Atria and stuff. So, how do you balance all those concerns? 
It's a great question. I, I think that uh, there there are writers who go off into their cabin and, and write a whole book and it's mm -hmm. done and kind of comes springs out of the head of Zeus. That's not the way I work. And ultimately, the kinds of realities and issues that I was talking about in this book were are so multi-dimensional and and require so much more intelligence than I have. Mm -hmm. uh, it requires the collective intelligence. And so I, I really had, fortunately, I had them advising me all along the way. So mm -hmm. it wasn't just a process of sending them kind of uh, a finished version and saying, can you poke holes in it or, or tell me where <laughs> I've screwed up? Uh, it was much more of a an evolutionary process that we went through together. Mm -hmm. But ultimately... It's really, uh, you know, everybody has a vote but not a veto. As mm -hmm. the uh, as the author, you have to, you're the only one who ultimately has the veto rights or needs to control those, uh, have that veto right. So, I, I my goal was that the <coughs> the scientists had to be satisfied with it as a minimum. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't, I needed to say, I not include something that was just totally science fiction to use your term mm -hmm. so ridiculous that they'd say ah, it's never going to happen in a million years uh and at the same time i also having an incredible editor at atria simon schuster and many other readers who were reading it for story i was able to take their different feedback and say well and interrogate every sentence every word actually when i write when one of the things i do when I, before i finish a novel is i read the whole thing out loud to see how it breathes mm -hmm. and ultimately that was the goal is to make sure that everything's alive and whether it's a scientist or an editor who says this isn't alive this isn't real or my own uh discernment all of those uh for even if they're darlings need to go <laughs> As you're writing this book, and I'm I'm wondering, did you like? Uh, there's a literary history. I mean, you mentioned uh, Moby Dick, you mentioned Jaws. This also made me think of David the Dolphin. Did you go back and look at some of this, the the fiction, your fictional uh, forebears? I I did. Um, I uh, looked at them kind of as uh, it's, it's a difficult process because you don't want to be overly influenced. Oh sure. No. And at the same time, you and and you at the same time don't want you're writing into a, a literary history as you said mm -hmm. and you want to be aware of that literary history so in many ways it was a process of understanding what they were trying to accomplish what the mm -hmm. strengths and and if one can say weaknesses of, uh, of uh, <laughs> even when talking about Melville I, I, <laughs> I, I uh, feel uh, hesitant to say that but all writers uh, have strengths and weaknesses. all stories have strengths and weaknesses and understanding you know what they their great accomplishments and successes were and understanding what one wants to do differently now um, when when you were creating this book um, it, it strikes me too that you uh, you you have uh, some really interesting uh, set of characters, and you give them. They seem to you know have lives outside of the book. So talk about creating characters who have those kind of lives beyond the pages of the book, and and how that ties into some of your you know factual and scientific research. Well, that's a. I'm delighted to hear you say that because that's every author's goal with their writing characters is to create characters who you feel could. Uh, could walk off the page. When I wrote Don Juan, uh, The Lost Diary of Don Juan, people said, I felt like I could sit down and have a beer with the guy, you know, <laughs> or, could, uh, or Cerveza. And uh, 
you, that's what you want. You want mm -hmm. characters who people can really relate to. Uh, in this case, um, I was really fortunate to have some extraordinary role models mm -hmm. uh, in the actual scientists and whalers and other people that I met. Uh, you you can't uh, fictionalize a person. Mm -hmm. You have to kind of, it's a pastiche. You have to create a collage of their life uh, mm -hmm. of different characters. Mm -hmm. But part of it is also uh, my my writing teachers have uh, impressed upon me that you have to know a character really well. You need to know what kind of toothpaste they would use. You mm -hmm. have to know who they would vote for. You need to under know a lot about who they are as a human being or or as one of my novelists, uh, my writing teachers described it, homo fictus. You know, it's a little bit different <laughs> than homo sapien. It's a, it's a distillation of, hu of human like qualities. That, yeah. Yes, uh, it's fictus, right? right. That yeah, was that's good. Jim Fry's term. Mm -hmm. And, um, but that distillation of qualities, but it, they're, 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 they have to be human, but they have to be more than just human in mm -hmm. some in some way and so that was what i was aspiring to now this is also set in, in part part of this takes place at a, at a research college a and did you uh go into talk to people who are in, in graduate studies who are you know studying whales or are there people actually at the kind of level where your characters uh, exist at least as the book begins uh yes uh there i did um i actually some of this story takes place up at uh in and around uc davis mm -hmm. uh, which has a uh a marine mammal program and has uh some of the kinds of there, there's there's uh, a if you can believe it, there's academic intrigue in the in the novel, as yes. you mean. <laughs> and uh, it may not sound super exciting to people, but the truth is, you know, that there's there actually those are some of the tensest scenes. I like that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a lot of drama that you can uh, mm -hmm. take out of uh, of higher education and and, and the the humans that the the, the, the heroes and villains that li that that operate there. Uh, but I actually lived in Davis mm. for a period of time and. Um, and also when I went up, as I was mentioning, because when Delta and Dawn went up uh, the Sacramento, uh, that was quite close to this area. And that was it was quite an amazing thing because here I've written this book about uh, that a, a significant part of it is about a, a whale trapped up the Sacramento River. And here are these two whales, a mother and, uh, and her calf, who are trapped up the Sacramento River. It plays even more into the, the, your book, right? Exactly, and I uh, and I was able to go up there, work with it, and meet and work with an incredible veterinarian uh, named Frances Gulland of the Marine Mammal Center. Mm -hmm. See what she was doing to rescue these whales. Uh, work, you know, I got to meet the Coast Guard and work with the Coast Guard mm -hmm. uh, and see how they were interacting and trying to save the whale. Uh, I had so that was I you know I had these incredible advisors not only who were talking from historical memory but who were able to point to what they were actually doing at the time uh, as uh, models for what my characters might do in the novel. Now, um, you, you've written two works of fact-based fiction. Do you know what set of facts you're looking at for your next book? Uh, it's a great question. I um, I don't yet. Uh, all of my novels come out of a question uh, mm -hmm. that that I don't start with something I want to say. I start with something I want to know about. Mm -hmm. I want to understand. So in the Lost Diary of Don Juan, the question that that sparked that book was: Is it possible to marry passion and compassion together for a lifetime? Mm -hmm. uh, then the question that sparked this book was: 
quite frankly, can we survive as a species? And if so, what is it that is stronger than our greed, our ignorance, our denial? That was the question that sparked this book and that I desperately needed an answer to and that drove me to Tonga and to swim with white sharks and to go to Beckway and uh, the years that it takes to write a novel. And I don't yet know what that next question is going to be. Just make sure that it involves going to Paris. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I've been speaking with Douglas Carlton Abrams. His new book is Eye of the Whale. Thank you for joining me, Doug. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.